The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Cindy Leung. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Dr. Leung earned a Master of Public Health from the University of California, Berkeley, and a Doctor of Science in Nutrition and Epidemiology from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Leung is a nutrition epidemiologist whose research focuses on diet and health disparities in vulnerable populations. Her research focuses on three primary areas. One, understanding stress as a novel mechanism underlying food insecurity and children's risk of obesity. Two, evaluating the impact of participating in federal food programs on dietary behaviors and chronic disease risk. And three, assessing stakeholder-supported strategies for improving the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, better known as SNAP. In a separate line of inquiry, she has conducted several studies on diet and cellular aging. Dr. Leung holds an adjunct appointment at the University of California Berkeley School of Public Health. She is the lead author of a recent paper in the March 2020 issue of the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics titled, Understanding the Psychological Distress of Food Insecurity, a Qualitative Study of Children's Experiences and Related Coping Strategies. And after I read that excellent report, I knew I wanted to have you as my guest, Dr. Leung. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the program. It's really my pleasure to be here. Well, I think that your research article is so important in helping us understand the broader context of food insecurity and probably one that we don't think about that often. But first, let me ask you, how did you become interested in nutrition? How did you become interested in hunger especially? Well, I've always been interested in nutrition. I remember back in elementary school, even learning about the food pyramid and realizing that there were government guidelines that were supposed to educate us on how to eat a healthy diet. I didn't know that that was a field that I could work in professionally until I went to college. And I loved every nutrition class that I took at UC Berkeley. And I decided to go back and get a master's in public health nutrition, which is the sub-area of public health that works with trying to improve nutrition and nutrition disparities at the community or the population level. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get interested in hunger or even learn about hunger issues until after I got my master's degree. So the very first job I got after I earned my master's in public health was as a nutrition education intern at a large food bank in Oakland, California. And so if any listeners are familiar, it was the Alameda County Community Food Bank, which serves the part of the Bay Area that covers Berkeley, Oakland, and as far east as Livermore, and as far south as Fremont. And at the time, our food bank served 
about 40,000 people. And that was more than 10 years ago. And ever since then, I have just seen the, the caseload, the numbers of clients served just skyrocket. And in this role at the food bank, I went on to become a coordinator for all of the community organizations that distributed food to the community. And I did my part to advocate for SNAP and WIC benefits. I taught nutrition education to our many food bank clients. And I got to work with anti-hunger advocates throughout the state to learn about what is the intersection of hunger and nutrition and what is our role as a food bank to try to alleviate hunger and promote good nutrition at the same time. And at the same time, every time I had a conversation with one of our clients, I saw their struggles with accessing and affording healthy food. Many of them had chronic diseases like hypertension or diabetes. And every single person said that they wanted to eat better, they wanted their children to eat better, they wanted to have better access to healthy food. And it made me really passionate about wanting to pursue these issues from a larger level, which is why I've devoted most of my research program to understanding why food insecurity or hunger is such an important health issue, what are the gaps in our research, and how can we continue to address those research gaps to try to improve policy. Mm, That's fantastic. My first experience also with regard to just having the problem of hunger slap me in the face was when it was my first job. It was at a veterans hospital. And I remember I was the dietitian that was teaching the special diets. And one of the veterans said to me, lady, I've got diabetes, but all I can afford to eat are beans and potatoes. And I realized too, that I needed to take my work in a much deeper direction. And that nutrition education per se, while important, wasn't enough. We had to look at the policies that put people in these precarious situations to begin with. I'm curious with regard, though, to your work looking at the food quality that the food banks and pantries have access to. Would you say that the food quality was subpar? Or do you think that there's quite a variation? I think food banks have come a long way from trying to promote both nutrition, and provide enough calories. Mm -hmm. And when I first joined this food bank in Oakland, I remember being put in a very tough place about making decisions about incoming food deliveries. And just to give you an example, we had gotten a donation at the time from Baskin-Robbins for these tubs of marshmallow fluff. I guess it was maybe close to the expiration date and couldn't have been used at one of their stores, and so they donated it to a food bank. And it was literally a pallet of marshmallow fluff, bigger than any family or even any church or soup kitchen could try to incorporate into their meals before the date expired. And it was up to me and a couple other nutrition education professionals to try to decide, do we throw this away because it's pure sugar and it will not do our clients any good to be eating this or do we give it away because it's still calories and maybe some calories are better than no calories and it was a really hard decision to make and I guarantee you food banks are still making those decisions every day. I have seen that a lot of food banks now have put nutrition into their mission statements 
They're not only about trying to distribute food and distribute calories, but trying to distribute food that meets the needs both nutritionally and culturally of all of their clients, as diverse as some groups can be. So another example that I can give you is that our food bank was the first in the whole San Francisco Bay Area to refuse to give out sugar-sweetened beverages. And we were the first food bank to have that policy. And there was some opposition about, is this the right move for a food bank to be taking? And also, we had to figure out how do we compensate for not giving out sugar-sweetened beverages. Food banks usually will use poundage as their metric of how much food they give away. And if you're not giving away sugar-sweetened beverages, which are very heavy, what can you give out in its place? And I was very fortunate to be part of a food bank that had wonderful connections with local farms. And we replaced the poundage from sugar-sweetened beverages with fresh fruits and vegetables. Wow. And in the, I think the next three to five years, every food bank in the Bay Area then adopted that same policy that we would no longer be giving away sugar-sweetened beverages. We would be substituting it with something else. Because at the time, even more than 10 years ago, the research was emerging that sugar-sweetened beverages are related to so many poor health outcomes. And we didn't want our food to be contributing to any worse health disparities that we were already seeing in our communities. Absolutely. So I am curious about some of those products that come into food banks, like the marshmallow fluff, like the sugar-sweetened beverages or sugar-sweetened cereals. Do food companies have some sort of tax deduction? You know, if they have this product that's, oh my gosh, you know, we can't use it, but hey, if we give it to a food bank, we can write it off. Is there some benefit to food companies unloading their surplus, highly sugared foods onto food banks? Do you know? I can't speak to the specifics, but I believe that there is. And that was an incentive for food manufacturers to be donating food to us at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree. There have been so many changes of late in terms of food quality and food banks. And some food banks, the Portland, Oregon Food Bank, for example, I know also works with their clientele to work for policy change. Yeah, I agree. And I think just having worked in the food bank and seen the food that has come in through donations, it is wonderful that people in the community feel strongly and want to give back and donate to food banks. But I also think it's important to remember that the people who are eating the food that you're donating are real people. They're real families who have hunger in their stomachs. And sometimes I think there's a tendency to just donate food that you yourself wouldn't eat. Yeah. Maybe because it's not your preference, it's close to the expiration date, or maybe it's past the expiration date, and it's junk food that you don't want your kids to eat. And I think it's important for us to remember that someone out there may be eating this food, and if you don't want to eat it, but someone else, maybe in a worse financial situation, wants to eat this food. So I think maintaining that integrity for people who use food banks, food pantries, churches, you know, all of our network of emergency food providers, it's important to remember that there are real people on the receiving end who don't live on just peanut butter and pasta or want to eat marshmallow fluff or expired Halloween candy, right? They want real food to meet their nutritional needs. Exactly. 
I was curious to know, with regard to the populations that you've been working with so intimately, how many people are working and still dependent upon the food bank or the food pantry network? I would say the majority. In the paper that you referenced that we had published in the Journal of Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, although that report was on the children's interviews, we also interviewed the parents. And most parents were working. They were working a bunch of different jobs that probably were paying close to minimum wage to try to support their family and support their rent and other basic needs. But most people had an income, and it just wasn't enough. Now, now, granted, these interviews were conducted in the San Francisco Bay Area, where the cost of living was quite high. But it was a very common experience of, I'm working, or my partner is working. We are struggling to pay the rent. We still have to pay for food. And at the end of the month, I end up just going to the food pantry because I've exhausted all my other resources. Mm, Yeah. We need to take a break because we're halfway through already, but I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Dr. Cindy Leung. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health, and we are going to be diving into an excellent article that she published. She's the lead author in the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the March 2020 issue. And it has to do with children and the impact of hunger and food insecurity on their mental health. So let's do take a dive into this because I think that we are not aware enough about how hunger affects children. It is not just a gnawing hunger pang. There is a psychological distress. And the title of your article is Understanding the Psychological Distress of Food Insecurity, a Qualitative Study of Children's Experiences and Related Coping Strategies. Now, tell me a little bit about what led you to want to do this study in the first place. Well, let's see. We started this study in 2016. And at the time, we were starting to come out of the Great Recession and finally starting to see national levels of food insecurity declining. But even so, there has been decades of research looking at health and developmental consequences in children who come from food insecure households. And these, there's a whole long list of poor outcomes that children in food insecure households are more likely to display. And I'll just give you a couple examples. They have more behavior problems more aggression, higher levels of anxiety and depression, more substance abuse problems, higher levels of suicide attempts, poor academic performance, poor concentration in schools, in addition to some nutritional inadequacies like having a slightly higher risk of calcium and iron deficiency and some mixed findings about whether children and students with your households are more likely to be overweight or obese. And so there were a lot of these population-wide studies on food insecurity and children's health outcomes. And at the end of every paper, the researchers would try to speculate as to why food insecurity would be associated with so many poor health outcomes, ranging from nutrition 
and health issues to behavioral issues to school performance issues through a lot of serious mental health issues. And at the time I was doing the study, I was a postdoctoral scholar at the University of California, San Francisco, and my primary mentor was a prominent health psychologist. And she had been looking into the work of stress as a reason for why caregivers, caregivers meaning a family member who provides full-time care to a loved one with a chronic illness. And so she had been studying mothers of children who were autistic. And her research has shown that stress is one of those main reasons why caregivers have poor health outcomes over time. That's because they're chronically stressed. And I started to think, could this then be applied to food insecurity? Maybe stress is one of those explanations for why some of these children in food insecure households have so many poor health outcomes because they're also chronically stressed about not knowing where the next meal is going to come from. And also around this time, there were studies that were coming out from different groups in the country showing that children were actually fairly aware if their families were food insecure. Now, historically, when we developed our measure of food insecurity, it has always been answered by a parent, usually the mother. And so the mother would respond to these questions about whether they ran out of money for food, whether she herself as a parent cut the size of her meals or ate less because there wasn't enough money for food. And also she would respond to whether the children in the household were eating less or skipping meals because there wasn't enough money for food. Now, parents also have this added burden of wanting to protect their children as much as possible from food insecurity. And so we know from research that parents will eat less so their kids have enough to eat. Parents will sacrifice their own food. They'll make sure they can do whatever it takes to make sure their children have enough to eat. And shortly before we started doing our study, there was a paper that came out from a group in South Carolina that showed that even as well-intentioned as parents are, children in food insecure households were fully aware, for the most part, that their families experienced food insecurity, and they had their own coping strategies that their parents were unaware of. So maybe the child would eat less so their siblings could eat, or they would eat less so their parents could eat. And so given that we know children are actually aware if their parents are struggling to put food on the table, we wanted to take this research question a step further and try to understand, are they also chronically stressed because they're worried that their families are food insecure? So that was the rationale for this study. And I'm trying to transitioning from the term chronic stress to psychological distress because as we start doing these interviews and we started having these conversations with children in the study, we realized that it wasn't just stress that children were experiencing. It wasn't just that they worried that they wouldn't know if they wouldn't have enough food or they felt stressed or anxious about their experience, but there was a whole host of other emotions that came along with that stress. And so in the paper, we reported that children also felt angry and frustrated when they didn't have the food that they wanted to eat. They felt embarrassed. They felt stigmatized by their peers when they compared themselves and felt like maybe their friends had more wealth than their families did. They felt isolated. They couldn't talk to their parents about 
how they were feeling because they felt like their parents were probably having it so much worse than they were. And they also experienced sadness and depression as a result of being food insecure. So calling it chronic stress didn't seem appropriate to us at that point. And so we broadened the term to use psychological distress. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important for all of us to understand what's happening to children. It's so tragic to read about their coping mechanisms. You have, for example, some reports and some of the statements that the children express to you. One of them says, you know, my imaginary friend is the one who gives me the imaginary food because he works at a place where you could get any food you want. I just imagine I have food. I imagine I have food, then eat the imaginary food. So they're drawing upon their imagination to cope with food insecurity as well as feeling angry and sad and depressed and probably wanting to help but not knowing how. Mm -hmm. That's right. The children in our study were between the ages of 7 and 14. And it was really striking to even hear from as young as a 7-year-old that they were aware that their mom struggled to get food for them or that their mom would eat less food or just skip dinner so, so they could have enough. And then just moving on to the coping strategies, I distinctly remember the child who talked about their imaginary friend. And it goes along with a lot of, a lot of the other children who said, now I'm flexible. You know, it's fine if I don't eat for a day. It's not the end of the world. I'm lucky that my parents go to work so hard to provide for us. Things that you wouldn't expect a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old to say, but certainly there was also a lot of gratitude, appreciation for what they were witnessing their parents were working for. Yeah. I had received some data about what COVID is doing, the, the economic impact of COVID. And I was so disheartened by layering that research on top of what you had reported. And one in five U.S. households say they often or sometimes run out of food, a persistently elevated level of food insecurity as the nation faces its many months now of coronavirus pandemic. And this was according to the COVID impact survey. But the fact that the food insecurity rate is now roughly double the pre-coronavirus level as measured by the USDA. And we're seeing insecurity rates highest among households with children with an income below 30,000 without a good education. And so I'm thinking about the impact of children that you found and these skyrocketing rates. And then I read that the Trump administration opposed a temporary 15% increase in food stamps and that anti-hunger advocates say higher SNAP benefits would alleviate hunger and even act as an economic stimulus. I think that people need to understand the full impact of our policy decisions. And with you working so closely with these children and seeing the trauma that they experience as a result of food insecurity, I can't help but think that if you had a magic policy wand, what would you do? What would you like to see at, at the national level? I don't know if I'll have a perfect answer for that question, but I would say given my public health training, broadly a stronger public health response to screening and treating COVID patients 
would be first and foremost, mm. right? Because if you were to treat COVID and try to eradicate the pandemic, then a lot of these other financial, food, health issues that have come from that would also be alleviated. But with that aside, because I'm not an infectious disease epidemiologist, it has been frightening to think about how this pandemic has exacerbated already high levels of food insecurity. Mm-hmm. And when the pandemic first really hit the U.S. in March, and there started to be some emerging data that came out around food insecurity. Last year, in 2019, the prevalence at the national level was 11%. So about one in 10, one in nine, one in 10 households had experienced food insecurity at some point. And you're absolutely correct that for households with children, that number has always been a little bit higher. And when the emerging evidence that we saw in March and April was that food insecurity then increased to closer to like 38%. Mm. So more than tripled. And that's a, that's a national average. And so there were definitely states that were closer to 40 and 50%. And the highest states that I could tell from the data were Alabama, Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Georgia. And they were all ranging from 44 to 48% food insecure at that oh time, my. meaning like almost one in two households were experiencing food insecurity, which is such a, it's frightening to think how quickly it escalated over the course of a couple months. And this was the same time when children's schools were being closed. And so there was also already the added burden of feeding children during the school day when otherwise they would have been in school eating breakfast and lunch in the national programs. My colleague at the University of Michigan, Julia Wolfson, and I recently published a study to try to understand the impact of COVID on food insecurity, at least in the early months. And we found that food insecure families were being affected in a number of ways. So one is that the the public health recommendations to stock up enough extra food for at least two weeks. It was hard for families who were already experiencing food insecurity who might be living month to month on their paycheck or on their other resources. They were already having a hard time adhering to those guidelines because they couldn't afford or they couldn't find those foods available in their neighborhoods. Because if you remember in March, everyone was kind of panic buying and a lot of the shelves were empty and people were stocking up on non-perishable foods. A lot of things that families who are struggling to put food on the table are already relying on, like canned and frozen fruits and vegetables to try to make their budget last through the month. And then secondly, we also found that adults and food insecure families were also work, more likely to work at jobs where they were considered essential, so they still had to report to work, and they were not able to work from home, or they were, able, they were more likely to lose their jobs. Mm. So kind of like the... The worst situation for when you're trying to respond to a pandemic and you have now family members, children who are at home and additional malady of the seed, either you're more likely to be exposed or you're more likely to be unemployed. Dr. Leung, I have to cut you off. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are going to have to close because we're out of time. But I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, 
Dr. Cindy Leung, Assistant Professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health and the author of a very important research paper looking at the psychological distress of food insecurity, a growing problem in the midst of COVID-19. Thank you so much for your work, Dr. Leung. Thank you again for having me and for bringing attention to this important issue.